Last we saw David in chapter 27, he had fled to the Philistines. And then chapter 28 talked about Saul. So the picture changes. The, the, the account of history is going back and forth. We return in chapter 29 to the story of David among God's enemies. And David doesn't know that judgment has fallen afresh on Saul. David will not see Saul again. He doesn't even know that God said in the previous chapter, the Philistines will win the coming battle over Israel. But the story now focuses on David and his dilemma and on the mercy of God shown to David. Let's read God's word. The English Standard Version, chapter 29, verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to the battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be uh, with the heads of men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign, for I found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of the Lord my king. And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word, may God bless all who hear, believe, and obey his word today. Amen. Amen. I was so glad we had our guitarist in worship this morning and you could hear those guitar chords. I, I couldn't get my fingers to do what they do, holding down the strings and strumming and getting the right combination of notes to form chords. And I, I, I do have an ear for music and I love hearing, especially at the beginning or the end, 
the chords that all of a sudden take you a little bit to the side and then they come back to the center for a landing. Okay, I'm not using musical terms. What are we talking about? Uh, I I think it's called chord progression. Uh, The melody, there's a first and a fourth or a minor and then it gets back to the major and the tones move around in a key and then they come back home to the main dominant chord of the key. And we know that there's resolution And it's so welcome. If you stop playing before that final chord, we'd be left hanging. So good job. Um, It's interesting that we can recognize a melody and accept that melodies have sometimes those minor chords or those subdominant chords. Sometimes we might even say there's dissonance in what we're hearing, something that doesn't seem to fit and yet it comes to a resolution and with good music you know it will come to a resolution because there's an author behind it and an an intent sometimes we need to recognize that our lives unfold and have melodies and themes much like music I mostly like the lyrics of hymns as well as the, the music and there's a wonderful hymn called God Moves in a Mysterious Way and it reminds us the music is not complicated, it's, it's straightforward. Um, we don't have the full hymn music in our hymnal. But that hymn and its lyrics remind us of, of how even through storms, God can be at work. Let me share some of the lyrics with you from that hymn. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon a storm. The hymn writer perceiving that God can move about through the depths of the sea and even through storms when we might stay in. It continues deep in unsearchable minds of never failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread. Okay, storms upon you. They are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. We're going to talk about some mercies that come upon the head of David today. Whereas David in his waywardness may have only been perceiving the storm clouds, he may have not been calling out to the Lord for deliverance from the presence of the enemies of God. But God was designing a way of escape before David knew it would arrive. There's surprise here. There's mystery here. And uh, the fourth lyric of that hymn would have been so helpful to David. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Wonderful hymn that reflects so much Christian truth. Let's take this challenging chapter with David among the enemies of God, ready for battle. And and even when the way of escape opens to him, he starts objecting. You go, no, David, just get out of there while you can. Here's a way of escape. What do we learn from this word of God? So let's take it first by, by setting the stage. Let's look at the past faith of God's servant. Because David is not just standing here as an unbeliever. He is one who has committed his way to God, who has a relationship with God. He had faith in God, and he's not displaying a lot of it right now. 
But I would assert to you that David was and is a model of faith for us. And so we can learn. And even though he's in the midst of his dilemma here, chapter 27, describe the details here in chapter 29, it looks darker, but there's a dawning coming. Let's see a part of David's faith that, uh, just for one example, that he stood against a giant. Do you remember chapter 17? It's been many weeks ago since we told the story of David and what's the giant's name? Goliath. Even just the word conjures up size, doesn't it? Goliath. Taller than any other man. His, his, his spear was like a weaver's beam. and uh, Just a giant of a man. And yet the shepherd boy David comes to the battlefield, sees what's going on, and steps forward. Why? Because, not of his, because of his faith in his military prowess, but because of his faith in God. Do you remember this declaration, 1 Samuel 17, verse 37? David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. And David won a mighty triumph with his sling. And once the giant was down, he took the giant's sword and cut off the giant's head and held it high. And the sword of Goliath was David's. Later on, it comes up in the story. And David's renowned and the world was beginning. But not because David beat Goliath, but David's God helped David to beat Goliath. That's David's faith. You might say, how could, how could someone who's had such a mighty triumph ever lose faith? I, you might even go back to the whole story of Israel. You remember Israel? They escaped Pharaoh by plagues across the land, the death of the firstborn, all sorts of supernatural miracles, and they go out celebrating. They get to the Red Sea, they're a little panic, and then the Red Sea divides. They see these great acts of God to deliver them. And in the wilderness, they're fickle. Faith and fickleness. I think that's why the, Paul, the apostle in the New Testament uh, exhorts others to fight the fight of faith. You have to grasp it and exercise it, lest the fickleness take over. Here David had won this mighty triumph over Goliath and cut off his head. But now David is charged with uh, being the bodyguard of a Philistine king, Achish. Do you remember, it's been a week, but back at the beginning of uh, chapter 28, that David was not only living among the Philistines and given a place to live, but the king said this, um, Uh, Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. He knew David had military skills. He says, okay, you're a mercenary, you're among here, I'll let you guard me. You know what's interesting about the word bodyguard if you look in the Hebrew? It's one of the few Hebrew vocab words most of us can remember. Rosh for head. I'll make you my head keeper. We, we think the term body and we realize, okay, bodyguard means you're the protective person. But in the Hebrew, it said, you're the keeper of my head. And the king of the Philistines is saying that to David who cut off the head of the biggest Philistine, Goliath. This guy is either very naive or he's very gullible or whatever. Does he hear what he's saying to David, the giant slayer? 
And what does David think when the Philistine king says, I'll let you guard my head? This was an enemy of the people of God. The Philistines have been raiding and warring against Israel. They're going to gain the upper hand before the book of Samuel's done. That little prod to faith. David, think of Philistine kings and heads of warriors. Remember, he doesn't. He's the bodyguard of a pagan king. And, and so you have all chapter 27, he's coming and going, and he's the bodyguard for the king, even though he had this past faith that would stand against a giant. What else do we know about David's relationship with God to set the background for this? Well, we know that David was the great uh, psalmist of Israel. Turn with me to Psalm 34. We'll take a very quick look at just one verse there. We'll look at the title of Psalm 34, and then we'll look at a verse. You know, just before verse 1 in our English translation, most Bibles print the, the title, and that's part of the inspired scripture. It says, Psalm 34, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. You remember David went among... Uh, the enemies of God on a previous occasion and feigned madness and they finally kicked him out. And so this is a psalm written when David reflected on that difficulty. And we turn to this, remember we're just taking a look, what's the nature of David's faith in God? He says, I will bless the Lord at all times, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. Maybe there should be a footnote there because there isn't a lot of praise in David's mouth in chapter 29. But he aims for that. What does he say in verse 7? David declared in the psalm, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Yes, the Lord will deliver David by his mercy. But David is not so much fearing the Lord in our chapter as he is fearing Saul, which is why he left the country. And he's guarding his behavior if you remember he'd go on raids and he'd have to lie about his raids and when he went on raids he'd have to kill all the witnesses so that nobody turned him in the singer of trust in God is now apparently not trusting the Lord in chapter 29 he's not singing the Lord there's not much evidence of that you know what we do see back in 1 Samuel 29? The, the Lord's name does appear in chapter 29 on the lips of the pagan king. Did you see that in passing? 1 Samuel 29 verse 6, The pagan king Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been... And he goes on to speak, but he begins with the name Yahweh Jehovah. I don't think Achish is a believer and he's not worshiping the Lord, but he's certainly honoring David's God. And in this account, it's the only praise that God gets from the lips of a pagan king. The singer of trust is now silent and the pagan king is the one who's using the Lord's name more than once. But in the past, David had been very strong in his faith. In fact, just before this episode, back in chapter 26, we had looked at that. He made declarations. He said the Lord uh, uh, rewards um, uh, every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. 
David had told Saul of his very faith and trust in the Lord. Saul, I don't need to take your life. Our lives are in the hands of God. So that's the backdrop. This man of faith, this man of strong and valiant and fruitful faith, is now in this present dilemma. Just the fact of these chapters should teach us that a follower of Jesus, walking by faith, having been fruitful in faith, can fall into these seasons of fickleness, of waywardness, of sin. We're thankful that the Lord disciplines those he loves. He will shape us and recover us. And it's the promise of Jesus Even as he prays to God the Father, Lord, here I am, and all whom you have given me, not one is missing. If you've been born again, if Jesus holds you in his flock, if he is your shepherd, you may stray, but he will find you. He will recover you. He will enter into your present dilemma What is this dilemma that David faces? Let's just describe it a little bit further. Uh, David had been marauding. Uh, I thought that was a great word for for what he was doing. He was going and raiding other villages. He misled the, the Philistine king to think that he was raiding against his own people, Israel, But in in reality, he's raiding other cities, uh, Amalekites and others. And he would leave no one alive to tell otherwise. And he'd give his bounty to the king, and the king loved him and made him his bodyguard. But David was in this marauding, self-providing mode for him and the men with him, for him and his families. This marauding behavior is sinful behavior. And it started with the thought, we're not going back through all of chapter 27, but David said, I will perish. It started with his thinking, then it started with his action, and his action became a habit and a pattern kind of reminds us of what Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, said, sow, and he uses the metaphor of sowing and reaping, he says, sow a thought and you reap an action, sow an act and you reap a habit, sow a habit and you reap a character, sow a character and you reap a destiny. There's a lot of truth in that. It's not the whole story, though. Because it kind of uh, eclipses the sovereignty of God. Sowing and reaping. I've sinned, so I'm going to reap judgment. But there is a God who saves sinners. So, Ralph Waldo, wherever you are, don't leave God out next time. But the the pattern is there for us to be warned by. Wrong thinking, wrong focus mentally, spiritually, ignoring our relationship with the Lord and focusing on our problems and our enemies can lead us to wayward behavior. We need to guard our thoughts and watch our habits. Perhaps we need to pray as the psalmist does in Psalm 19, that very last verse. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You need to pray about your thoughts. You need to pray about what you fixate upon and guard your thoughts, your actions, and don't let these patterns go on. David had been marauding among the Philistines for weeks, months, and years. He was there a long time, a long time dry season 
And as chapter 29 opens up, we see the Philistines marching to war. This is their biggest gathering, and they are going to win the battle. We were told that in Scripture just at the end of the previous chapter. They're going to win. And, and look, in the ranks, in the back, near the Gittites, near the mercenaries, is David and, and his Hebrew warriors. And they're marching with the enemy. Where are they marching? To battle King Saul and the people of God. Yes, David and Saul had a conflict. How many times had David said, don't touch the Lord's anointed? And now he's marching with the enemy against Saul. David, David, David. To quote a Scotsman, Sir Walter Scott. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. The, the pressure is growing. As we're reading the story, we think, oh my, here's David and he's fooling Achish, but now he's going to have to put his cards on the table. Who's he going to fight for? And you know, he does make this one cryptic, cryptic ambiguous statement because uh, Achish says, David, you can't really stay. You have to go. And instead of David saying, phew, now I got an out, I'm going back. He objects. And this common question of David, he says, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant? And then he said, um, that I may not go and, and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King. It's not the direct address to Achish. There's an ambiguity in that phrase. David says, why can't I go and fight the enemies of the Lord, the king, my Lord, the king? Is he referring to Achish, whom he's been serving for many months? Or in the ambiguity, is he kind of has a wry smile and said, uh, uh, you'll see, I'll go fight for Saul. The context and the flow leaves it ambiguous, and we can't really credit faith to ambiguity. I know some people are scraping for anything positive to say about David, and they camp there, and they say, oh, look, he has a secret plan. He was going to kill all the Philistines and win the battle. No. God had already said the Philistines were going to win. And God would take care of Saul, not David and his planning and his scheming. He's marching with the enemy. Oh, that he would remember Psalm 1, that he would not uh, walk, stand, or sit with the enemies of God, with the mockers and the others. So the conclusion here, I like the, the phrase of Alistair Begg here about this dilemma. He says the conclusion is, David is in a mess of his own making. Yep, that's David. He can't just blame his enemies. This is David's mess. And as Alistair Begg says further, David's biggest problem was David. And you can begin to see how God's word becomes a mirror to you and your soul and your standing, your relationship with the Lord. God's word is like a mirror. Take a look at yourself and your own behaviors. If you're experiencing trouble and affliction... Do you bear the blame for your thoughts, words, and deeds, for your lack of godliness? He's in a mess of his own making. David needs saving, and God will help him. 
this mess and any conflicted feelings in David are reflected in the New Testament too. If you're looking for a New Testament window, a New Testament theological explanation of these tensions at work, we can only hope that David is like Paul in Romans chapter 7. The very thing I want to do, I don't do. And why is sin still warring within me? And oh Lord, who deliver me from this, this awful condition? Psalm, excuse me, Romans 7 talks about the inner turmoil of, uh, of the believer as he wrestles with sin and often does what he doesn't really want to do and he wants help. We don't see evidence of David's wrestling. But my guess is it's there because his heart did belong to God. And sin's miseries and God's mercies are both beyond measure. It's miserable to be in sin, but God's mercies are beyond measure. Let's take a look at the paradox of God's mercies now. And I think this is the main point of, of, of the chapter. And even though we don't see God explicitly working here, there's a mysterious working of God here. Or as uh, Alistair Begg says, God is not a bystander in this unfolding drama. When we don't see the word of the Lord through the prophet, or we don't see God made the sun stand still, when we don't see those statements, do we sometimes think God is a bystander? Think it not. Haven't we learned from the story of the book of Esther? A lot of talk about God in the book of Esther? Not much explicit, right? At all. But God, a sovereign God, is at work. As that hymn this morning said, uh, God plants his footsteps. He moves deep in unsearchable minds of never failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. God is always at work. He is not a bystander. He wasn't a bystander in 1 Samuel 29. He's not a bystander in our season of covid God is not a bystander. He is not a bystander when your loved one is in the hospital or when your loved one is wayward. God is not a bystander. He's a God of mercies. And there's a paradox here. In fact, the whole, the whole thing, how God will deliver, is this surprise, surprise. Look what God did. Let's take a look. First we see, as I mentioned earlier, God's enemies are the ones that are giving God praise. David, the psalmist of Israel, is not the one praising God. It's the king who says, as surely as the Lord lives. And, and uh, what is it? The commanders of the Philistines? They, they say, um, Achish, we can't trust David. Everybody knows that the top song on the radio these days is David has killed his ten thousands. Let me ask, because they quote the psalm in part, or the song, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. What was that song about? It was about killing Philistines. And the Philistines say, hey, that's the guy. And out of the mouth of God's enemies, the great works of God and the servant of God are praised. It's awkward. It's, it's, there's a paradox here. That's not the way we normally read the Bible, that people bringing up all the good stuff are the bad guys. 
I do remember something Jesus said. Somebody complained on Palm Sunday that tell the people to be quiet. All this ruckus about you being the son of David and a king as you come into Jerusalem. Tell the people to be quiet. Do you remember what Jesus said? If they were quiet, the rocks themselves would cry out. The works of God will be acknowledged. And when David falls silent as he's stuck in his dilemma and his sin, the enemies of God take an oath as the Lord lives. Why would you take an oath? I don't think he believes in God, but he certainly reveres and perhaps fears Jehovah that he would say that. And everyone knows that it's Jehovah's God. Jehovah is David's God. So God's enemies give these praises. And that's a paradox as God makes himself known in the midst. And, and the climax is God's enemies deliver his servant. In chapter 29 here in verse 7, we're, we're surprised when all of a sudden the king says to David, go back, go peaceably. He doesn't say, you're under arrest until we can investigate your, your danger to us. <laughs> He's spotted in the ranks, in the military formation, And he's not even held under suspicion. They say, oh, David, thank you for everything you've done so far. And I know you really wanted to fight with us, but if you could just go home, it would keep everybody happy. David's in a a life and death situation. And he's delivered by the king of the Philistines. It's a surprise deliverance. We know from... Is it uh, Psalm 23? God can prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. You remember the verse? The 23rd Psalm? How many times has God used his enemies to set the table? God has such surprising means of, of showing mercy. And here David is delivered not only from the Philistines who object to him, but the Philistines in their war against Saul and killing Saul deal with David's other enemy. David's problems are all resolved here by the enemies of God. Because God is at work. God is showing his mercies. And there's a mystery here, how God works. We use the word mercy. And and, and we know mercy and grace are very close uh, to the heart of God type of attributes. God's grace is his favor, his blessing, his positive countenance upon you. His mercy is his withholding what you deserve. His mercy is treating you other than you deserve. God gives hope anew. He not only delivers, but he gives hope anew. There's, there's something subtle in the text, and I tend to agree with those who have pointed it out. Do you see how chapter 29 ends? Uh, Achish several times said, uh, you can go home, and verse 10, now rise early in the morning, and uh, then he says again, start early in the morning, as soon as you have light. And then verse 11, the narrator tells us, David set out with his men early in the morning. You know, there's, there's a threefold repetition of his departure. He didn't, he didn't have to rush out 
right then and there and travel by night, inconvenient. He's been treating with further favor of God. And I want to say God gives new hope and there's a new day dawning. And what is David thinking as he and his men walk peaceably from their dilemma in the light of a new day? And even more so, the biblical compiler of this whole book told us previously, how did Saul end? How did the last passage with Saul, the end of chapter 28 end? Uh, Remember Saul saw uh, Samuel and was told that he was going to die the next day in battle and he fell on the ground and and he wouldn't eat and finally got him to eat and it ended with um, they ate, then they rose and went away that night. There's an emphasis that this was happening by night. And here David, Saul's going away into the night, the darkness, and there's a literary device there. And then David, by the light of day, is given freedom from this dilemma that he himself had brought upon him. I think this is a subtle picture of how God gives hope, or as Jeremiah says, morning by morning, new mercies I see. And I I can't help but with every footfall, imagine that David was pondering how he got out of there. He didn't have to act mad. He didn't have to kill anybody. It was completely out of his hands. The mercy of God had come his way. And God would keep his word and David would become king. David would be preserved because God gave him that hope. Let me close this morning with with three applications, especially if you feel trapped or if you feel you have brought yourself into a dilemma, you've made a mess and you are the problem. And we don't have to raise our hands. Many of us would. Um, It was funny. I I checked Alistair Begg's sermon on this topic and uh, he he made the comment, uh, what was he asked? He said, uh, pastor, uh, uh, you've been a pastor here for 30, almost 40 years. What, uh, who's been the biggest problem for you while you've been at the church? And he said, oh, that's easy. It's been me. Um, we are often our greatest problem because we don't often fight the fight of faith or we indulge our sin and we don't remain faithful. So if you're in that position and trapped, let me give you three words of advice here. First, admit your sinfulness. Admit your sinfulness. Not just that you made a mistake. Not just that one decision was sinful or you've got this little pattern of sin in this area of your life. Remind yourself that you are still a sinful human being. You are not yet fully sanctified. You are not yet in glory. Sinclair Ferguson has a book on devotion to God and he says this, It's always a shock to our pride When we discover that we are sinners and not merely people who occasionally sin. So realize that you are not yet a finished product. So don't be so surprised when you sin or when your thoughts stray or these patterns entangle you. Remember that the Bible is filled with exhortation after exhortation. Said, uh, who's hindering you from running? You were running so well. What's hindering you? Lay aside these things. Look on things above. Walk this way, not as they walk. Walk this way. Come on, fight the fight of faith. The Bible is filled with calls to sinful followers of Jesus. We have a new heart and new eyes. We see our Lord. We love our Lord. But we're not yet what we will be. So like the Apostle Paul, we need to press on, but it starts with admitting our battle with sin. 
we should know what Augustine said. God leads us to eternal life not by our merits, but according to his mercy. So don't try to hide your sin. You know, like you want to sell a house, you you make it look pretty and you hide all the junk so it looks really nice and someone will buy it. You don't need to do that to your life. What do they call it? Staging? You think you're coming to church, you're staging so that God treats you differently? No, it's mercy to undeserved sinners. So admit, understand your sinfulness, own it. Secondly, acknowledge God is not hindered. God is not hindered. Dale Ralph Davis had said this, Jehovah is not short-tempered with his people. His mercy and patience are not exhausted when we choose our own foolish ways. God's hands are not tied because you screwed up. It was really bad for David. I've been in some bad spots as a follower of Christ since 1978. I've made my own messes, as you have. That doesn't tie God's hands. Oh, I gave him that Bible verse and now he's gone and done it. No, God is not hindered. We can always plead for God's mercy. Oh, that we would remember the exhortation of Psalm 34. We only read about the angel encamping around him. The Lord, when he has sought, he delivers. Magnify the Lord with me. Those who look to the Lord are radiant. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Faith, when it gets a hold of you, will point you to God. God is not hindered by your difficulties. The Lord Jesus Christ knows how to shepherd his people. When you go astray, he is not at a loss what to do. Finally, if you're in these dilemmas, make sure that you agree with God's word, that you believe God's word. One example, just to wrap it up, from Psalm 23. We know how Psalm 23 ends, the Psalm of David. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's a great ending. And you know what's following him? It says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me. David needs mercy. We need God's mercy. But it's interesting, that word follow doesn't mean shadow or tag behind or like a police tail. In Hebrew, the word follow is actually the word pursue, as in to hunt or to chase. The hound of heaven has your scent. You are his. If you go astray, he will find you. He will hunt you down and bring you home. That's how God's mercy works. It's, it's a mystery when it breaks forth, but it's a sovereign God in gracious love showing mercy to his people. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life because of the Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father and the work of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the thoughts that are stirred within us, the, the faith that is awakened in who you are and how you work. Father, forgive us for 
trying to clean up our act or stage our life so it looks better to you. Father, we simply plead for your mercy when we need it. May it be for your glory that you complete in us what you've begun. We thank you for the example of David that we can learn from his faith as well as from his weakness. And we can see that you are ever the faithful God. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We will sing together before we share the Lord's Supper. And our song is a contemplation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's hymn number 79. We'll stand as we sing. Jesus, the very thought of Thee, with sweetness filled.